Hello everybody, welcome to the Cane and Rinse podcast, it's volume 8, issue 397, and we're going to be talking about the Asteroids series of games and its spiritual successes and spin-offs in one of those type of shows that we do now and again, the reason being that Asteroids is 40 years old, give or take around now at the time of recording, I'm not sure on the exact date, I don't know if it's even out there, uh, perhaps we'll come across it during our discussion play along with the show we've only got three left before the end of another year of cane and rinse so all you've got to rattle through before now and the end of 2019 are uh, planescape torment then donkey kong country returns and final fantasy 15 um if you, if you haven't started those probably don't bother now um <laughs> get the show every show a week early and often extended for just one us dollar a month that doesn't mean it's only open to us patreons though patreon.com slash wherever you are in the world and pay a dollar or more and it'll magically translate into your local equivalent currently around 78p or 0.91 of a euro check your uh, check your local press for details we have other podcasts as well sound of play on wednesdays playwright on thursdays and the sausage factory on fridays they're all different check them all out at canarince.com and subscribe rate review this show and all those you can get them in the usual places we appreciate that. This one also on Spotify, if it's convenient to you. Uh, we also do some streaming on Twitch, and then we put it up on YouTube. Check our social media, Twitter, Facebook, uh, and you can find out when we're streaming and join in with the fun there. Canerince.com is the place to go, really, for the hub of all that we do and links to everything. Now joining me, Leon Cox, in issue 397 are Jesse Fuchs. Hello. Mikhail Kroder. Paranormal poetry pounding your vessel like asteroids, living collision, planetoids you can't avoid. Okay. I thought Dan was the poet. Dan Clark, welcome back. Yeah, I've been, uh, <laughs> I've been uh, what's the word? Uh, usurped there. So, but yeah, some nice bars from McEwley. I don't McEwley. Think he wrote that himself. No, it's not mine. It's uh, by Grant the Visitor from the uh, hip hop group uh, Executive Lounge. It's definitely referencing asteroids with a capital A. I like to think so. Okay, okay. I don't know. Was there an Asteroid song on the Buchner and Garcia album, along with the Pac-Man and the Donkey Kong? I think there is. I think they didn't. We're going to fight about this. (laughs) Perhaps Ryan will dig it out (laughs) for the closing credits. Strong emotional opinions. (laughs) Yes, uh, but apparently there was a song, Hyperspace, which is, in fact, uh, Beck's new album is named Hyperspace after, as he explicitly said, the hyperspace button on Asteroids because the album is like an escape from a bad relationship or something. I don't know. Possibly into something worse. (laughs) We'll talk about the hyperspace mechanic. Maybe just spontaneously exploding. (laughs) Uh, Friend of the show, if you listen to all the podcasts we put out, you'll have heard me interviewing author David L. Craddock on a number of occasions and possibly again soon because he has yet another book out. He's a busy man. He's also written for uh, Gama Sutra. Uh, He's spoken to Lyle Rains and Ed Logg for that uh, website some time ago. A quote here has Ed Log saying, I would certainly give Lyle the credit for the idea for the game. However, the meeting I remember was more of a brainstorming session. For example, I believe I suggested several ideas like breaking the rocks into smaller and smaller pieces so there would be a strategy other than just shooting wildly. In other words, shooting all the big rocks just leaves more objects that could hit you. I also believe I suggested the saucer that would come out and shoot you if you did not shoot some of the rocks in a timely fashion 
And Craddock asked, uh, what were the advantages and disadvantages to designing Asteroids as a vector graphics game? And Ed Logg said, this was another idea which I suggested in the meeting with Lyle. I had played Space War and I had done some work on the vector hardware we had, so I knew the advantages. The most important was the higher resolution, 1024 by 768 instead of 320 by 240. I felt we needed the extra resolution to show where the ship was aiming. Very interesting. Yes, we should rewind a bit because this is a 40-year-old game and I think we'll have some folks who are listening to this who are less familiar with Asteroids, as iconic as it probably seems to us, elderly folks and gaming historian types. Asteroids is was a game that was released in the arcades of 1979 by the American company Atari and it is monochrome but it is vector graphics we'll try to talk a little bit about what that means but it is a game in which you play a ship which has inertia you have a thrust button and rotate buttons and a shoot button and you shoot bigger rocks uh, they are moving across the screen not at ran well possibly at, i don't know whether you'd say at random but they are moving across the screen in different directions across one another they don't clip they don't bounce off one another they they just pass through one another which is something that is uh, different to some successors to asteroids and as you shoot the asteroids they break up into smaller pieces and fly off in different directions and that's it you clear the screen and flying saucers come on and bug you and that's pretty much it. And you try to survive as long as you can, clear as many screens as you can, and set a high score if you can. Folks, I remember Asteroids because I'm the oldest, I think. And I do remember playing this as a very young kid. The cabinet looked impossibly futuristic. I guess I'd seen Star Wars a couple of years ago at this point in 1979. So I was blown away by the idea of tech and spaceships and all that kind of thing. And Asteroids looked and sounded incredibly high tech, but also fearsomely imposing and complicated. And the buttons, there were many, rotate left, rotate right, thrust, fire, hyperspace, complicated. My hands wouldn't spread across the panel to fit all the buttons. Um, so I definitely tried to play it, probably wasted a few of my mum's 10 P's but mainly died a lot. And I used to just sit in the middle of the screen rotating and just enjoying the pew, pew, pew. This is the pew, pew, pew game. <laughs> the incredibly bright phosphorescent glow of the bullets as they sparkled across the screen, breaking up these rocks into smaller rocks and making this deliciously deep thrumming, cracking, crunchy noise. And I've played it thousands and thousands of times on multiple formats since. I've played it recently again at the arcades uh, in Arcade Club in Berry. Shout out to them because they still maintain their Asteroids machine and it still glows bright, that phosphor screen, that vector screen. It still looks high resolution to this day. And I'm still rubbish at it, but I'm better than I was then. Uh, memories of Asteroids. Who's the next oldest? Is it, is it Jesse? God, I'm not Maybe. sure. Maybe 74. Late 74. Yes. yes. Mm. Uh, it's funny. I mean, this is a game that was I was just always very neutral about. Like it existed. Mm -hmm. I if it was 
the game at the pizza parlor, you know, and I wanted to play an arcade game, I'd play it and I'd enjoy it. But I think, I mean, I was playing arcade games very young, but, and I love the vector graphics, but I think by the time I was, there was really arcades and I was really getting into it, I think Tempest is 1980. And that was the game I would always gravitate towards uh, well over Asteroids and just other, uh, then there was the Star Wars game a little later, but like, I always loved the vector graphics. There was something, and I think we'll kind of get into this, there's something really emotionally neutral about the game. And it also Mm kind of discourages you, like I, there, there's a hump you have to get over if you're going to move around at all, right? Mm -hmm. I'm sure we'll get into this when we get into the actual gameplay, but just in the sense of like, when I was young, there was no reason for me to ever hit thrust. Uh, so it was very much a game of just sitting in the center of the screen and rotating around and shooting things. Oh, good. Well, no, it wasn't just me then. Right. Which was fun, but it was not, you know, it, it, whereas, as we'll also talk about, I'm sure, when I got a Vectrex, which comes with Mindstorm built in, that mm. game I played an enormous amount of and really enjoyed. And a lot of it does come down to the the physics and inertia of that game being a little more... Uh, kid friendly in a lot of ways Mm -hmm. but yeah it's um it's a game it's funny it's a game that i have i'm teaching that uh class at nyu on 80s computer games uh so it's more computer but there's one week entirely for arcade and one week entirely for console for context and asteroids is one of the key games but like we do a dozen you know i do a dozen sort of 10 to 15 minute mini lectures uh, about different important games, but there's games you kind of talk about, and then there's games you kind of talk around. And Asteroids has definitely been an around where like three of the 15 minutes is me talking about Asteroids, and mostly I'm using it as a marker for talking about Vector, you know, and all of the Vector games and the ones that came before, and Cinematronics, and Lunar Lander, and Tempest, and Star Wars, and et cetera, et cetera. And I hadn't actually gone back and like played it. Now that I have and we're talking about it, I think I'll actually have a little more to say about the the game itself as opposed to Mm. just using it kind of as a a flag. Well, I hope so. (laughs) Mikhail, memories of Asteroids at the Arcades? I mean, what we should say is even though it was a 1979 machine, it did stick around for quite a while because it was such a massive hit. Yeah, I was I, I was three years old, and by the time we really started picking up on arcade games, it was uh, yeah a little bit into the eighties already. So I can't, I don't have any uh, bright memories of Asteroids, but it's another one of those games that has developed uh, its own video game language, which has been felt mm. throughout a lot of games afterwards, and has spawned many clones and many uh, iterations. So yeah, I mean. Even you know the, the the first time that I got hands on it on the uh, Atari anthology on the uh, an emulation of the arcade version, yeah. it didn't feel uh, alien or foreign to me. It felt like something I was already quite you know not not exactly yeah. adept at, but uh, I knew I felt like I could understand the language of the game. There were so many clones and ripoffs and knockoffs and spiritual yeah. successors that just kept coming out, and they they still do so. It was never a concept that was too far away. So to play the the original was not a stretch. Exactly. I even remember uh, getting a CD by DJ Kubert of the Invisible Scratch Pickles, and that had like a CD-ROM uh, bonus on there, which was basically you were spinning a record needle around, uh, shooting bad records into small smaller debris and pieces. Right. So it's basically, an asteroids clone, sort of flash game like, you know. Yeah, I think it got repurposed like that, or the concept got repurposed in any number of 
by any number of kind of companies and, and marketing firms. I, I'm sure I remember playing things that were called, I don't know, like Weetabixeroids or something where <laughs> yeah. it was breakfast cereal or I don't know, yeah. that kind of thing. It's one of those almost like public domain type of games. Uh, it definitely in that did yeah. go down. Yeah, and I, I don't know if Atari ever went after uh, anyone who made games because there were some that were, you know, just you know, one-to-one kind of copies. And, and I don't know if they ever went down that route. Of course, they had, in the other direction, they had some issues with games like Gauntlet and Paperboy being very close to games that had already existed on other formats. So I don't know whether they, maybe they shied away from that kind of thing. Yeah, not sure. Dan, what are your memories of Asteroids and your house kind of in touch with it have you kept well i'm not quite sure if i played it on the atari vts first or the arcade so they mm-hmm. kind of both fuse a little bit but i do remember the arcade machine being in a, the local swimming pool and a pub but i was so small that it's one that i remember sitting on a stool to to have to play so i must have been super young because i have this vivid memory of the first time i saw it thinking that the asteroids were millennium falcons oh. um, so i must have been like super small to have not kind of yeah. Grasp that, especially with the name of the game being asked. But I suppose you're not know <laughs> words like that, are you? But, um, but I vividly remember that. Uh, but Atari VCS is kind of where I really focused on playing it. But in the arcades, again, it was just one of those um, perennial, like you'd shove a 10. If you if there's 20 machines in an arcade and you've got a couple of quid in your pocket, you're going to put a 10p in Asteroids at some point. It's one of those that was just always there. Yeah, and it's interesting, actually. The, the Asteroids thing, although this is, I guess, the vibe of Asteroids is, it, it, it was made on the same PCB, I think, or basically the same bare-bones tech as uh, Lunar Lander, which was an even more kind of dry and serious sci-fi game. The I do wonder if, I think it was a hit anyway, but I do wonder if The Empire Strikes Back coming along just six months after Asteroids coming out and that sequence, you know, which I still think holds up today, Millennium Falcon flying through the asteroid field, I do mm. wonder if that sort of helped the game's longevity in terms of like you know oh i get to be the ship weaving my you know remember this is three years before the star wars vector graphics video game came out uh, from the same laboratory basically as this game but at least this gave us a chance of being you know a a shooty spaceship in some asteroids so i do wonder if if that was just kind of serendipitous it was the moment for sci-fi and asteroids to come together but i suppose we were still only 10 years after the moon landings and just the general excitement for anything Mm. spacey and sci-fi was still very much there in terms of the game's success, Asteroids displaced Space Invaders, which we talked about uh, in our previous volume. Check out that podcast. By popularity in the United States and became Atari's best-selling arcade game of all time at this point, with over 70,000 units sold. Atari earned an estimated $150 million in sales from the game, and arcade operators earned a further $500 million from coin drops, according to the Asteroids wiki. That's a lot of money in 1979. I mean, it's a lot of money now, but in 1979, that's an extraordinary amount of cash. And yeah, there were 70,000 units sold. I'm not sure if if it was more over the world. Maybe it was 100,000 units or something. But yeah, all those units are aging and the parts are becoming rarer and more expensive for the vector monitors in particular. Uh, Mikio, I know you're a bit, you have a bit of a passion for Vector mm. and we'll talk about uh, the game that you've been playing recently on your, your home Vectrex. What, was, what do you think is the, obviously we, uh, the, the designers there talked about the, the higher resolutions that were possible than, than raster graphics compared to, but what is it about Vector that was 
different and what's what do you think it is that's special I, I know they'd already been like vector games had already been quite commonplace some of the earliest games were i think were vector screens yeah. i think tennis for two is a vector game effectively isn't it and space war space war definitely is uh jesse can correct me on that probably i'm not if, uh, I, I know tennis for two is literally on an oscilloscope so oscilloscope. I, yeah. that that I, guess it's yeah. I think it might be a vector i'm trying though, to remember anyway. i was looking yeah no space war is computer space isn't I always get confused uh, about that. The, the yeah, very first right. Atari game is is Raster, which surprised me uh, when I looked at it. Yeah, that is surprising. Yeah, yeah, I was surprised uh, when you did your uh, you gave your quote of uh, of Adlock that he named an actual dot resolution uh, yeah. number there because effectively the way I understand yeah. it, you know, a vector monitor is something completely different from uh yeah. from from uh from from a bitmap or a uh, you know a pixel monitor mm-hmm. yeah the way i understand it you you can't make that sort of same resolution number of to it uh you know you can't attach that to it and i even some people have even told me that effectively a vector monitor has infinite resolution <laughs> yeah right yeah 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 so yeah. so the thing is yeah the um you know Playing with the Vectrex, and uh, you know, we know, of course, uh, the Atari uh, um, Star Wars game also with its mm. uh, with its vector graphics. Just the clean diagonals of the lines and the smooth three D effects of things moving yeah. in and in and out of the screen without sort of the sprite scaling effect that you yeah. you got later, even on games like Space Harrier. Yeah. It's quite a sight to behold, and I think it helps that the technology was sort of. Discontinued as at least for for mm. uh, for video games that is. So when you go back to these sorts of monitors now, they look still. Yeah, I, I like to use the term retro futuristic. They look something yeah. from the past, but they look at the same time they look uh, like something from the future. They look like something sci-fi mm. as well. Yeah, and what I was taken aback by by playing Asteroids again because for the last however many years since the early nineties, I've been mainly playing Asteroids on first the Amiga, then the PlayStation. Now the uh, the current gen consoles and what what you do notice is that the smoothness is being closer to being recreated. So I, this week I bought the Atari Flashbacks collections for the Xbox One, yeah, and so it's running in HD Asteroids, and they've added some kind of pseudo f- glow for the monitor as well. So it's starting to look much more like yeah. the arcade game than say the playstation one version did with which was kind of you know jerky and and uh yeah like jaggy yeah. but what really took took me took my my eyeballs back in time going to arcade club recently is that that intense brightness of the vector graphics mm-hmm. and the glow they really do give off around them now i don't know if um as i say i, I think it, as i understand it these parts for these monitors are getting rarer and more expensive and i i don't know if there'll ever be a time when none of these monitors will work or whether there'll always be specialists who are willing to find the the components to kind of get them up and running again every time i turn on my vectrex i'm a little bit scared that it won't turn <laughs> I was on gonna you know? say, <laughs> is it still bright and does yeah. it lose its no g- it's, st- it's still really bright yeah yeah the uh the sound the sound is a bit uh you know it, it's you Probably some dirty, co- dirty contacts around the, vo- the volume button. Right. Uh, button. So the, oh. in the beginning, the sound can go in and out a little bit, but the, the monitor is still, uh, yeah, still working great. Because I think it's important also to to point out to people not that familiar with the term what uh, vectors are uh, in terms of computer graphics as opposed to uh, pixel graphics, is that basically mm-hmm. everything gets drawn in lines instead of uh, instead of pixels instead of dots. Yes. 
And it's actually even early computer games that are on raster screens. The funny thing is, is a lot of like all the early Sierra online games, for instance, all the graphics are done essentially as vector, even though it's mm. a, you know, a, a raster normal monitor, because the amount of memory you'd need for a bitmap, like here's where every pixel is picture was enormous. Yes. Whereas if you literally like if you look at those old Sierra games, you're essentially seeing the person literally draw it. Like, it's just, it remembers the instructions vector style for make a line here, make, you know, et cetera, yeah. et cetera. And then it does the graphics by redrawing that because that's like a hundredth the amount of memory of actually uh, remembering the picture itself. So it's it's both kind of a technique and, but right, in a true vector thing, the the screen itself just doesn't have a bitmap. It's it's entirely about here are points and here are lines. Exactly. And that that's another thing. Uh, Leon, you spoke about uh, playing the game on Xbox One. Mm -hmm. uh, I was playing it on the original Xbox uh, at 480i resolution, I believe. So interlaced, yeah. that already gives a little bit of a problem uh, because what, what I effectively was playing was a uh, pixel approximation of the vector graphics. Kind of soft smoothened and blurry and that gave me some real visibility issues as well for, uh, if we're speaking about the, the bullets from our own craft and the bullets from the flying saucers they were very hard to see on the screen yes and as i say it's sort of ironic that with each new generation of consoles we're getting closer <laughs> to what the original asteroids look like on a vector monitor as uh, so maybe the next version of atari flashbacks that they release might be 4k rather than 1080p yeah. so we might be <laughs> even closer to yeah. uh, emulating vectors yeah, so there was a third designer on Asteroids as well as Lyle Rains and Ed Log, Dominic Walsh. But I've seen the name credited, but I, I, I don't know if Dominic is still around or gets interviewed or what, but I'm less familiar with what he did on it. Uh, the sound was by a man called Howard Delman. And just as another little bit of trivia, the game was distributed by Taito in Japan in the same way that uh, a lot of games from Japan were distributed by the likes of Midway in America. From an article, which I'm going to quote from a few times. This is excellent. This is from Esquire, the gentleman's magazine, not that kind of gentleman's magazine, uh, from February 1981, an article called Invasion of the Asteroids by David Owen. Jesse, you said you're familiar with this author. Yeah, he, I wrote, uh, not wrote, I read a book by him uh, that was very funny. And now I want to go back to called High School when he was like 25 or so. He was apparently very baby faced. He scammed his way back into going to a high school. Uh, and just went for a year and kind of reported on what the kids are like <laughs> in 1982 or whenever it was. Okay. Yeah, he's got that funny, I'm trying to think of a, you know, a human interest story writer, like mm. kind of a, a light humorous, but pretty good at also reporting. Uh, and yeah, he's he's someone I've read. He's written a bunch about golf. I don't know. He seems like a, right. a nice fellow. Yeah. And I would say from 1981, this article feels like it was kind of ahead of its time in a way. Like we're still having that conversation about video games being taken seriously in the mainstream media. And maybe there was more of this actually in the late 70s, early 80s in the first big arcade boom than we perhaps are aware of. But yeah, this is a there was a, a lengthy piece from Esquire still available to read, although I think there's a three article limit before the paywall gets brought down if you look at the site. This is from this is about the the inception of the game. And we're talking about influences. This says Asteroids Direct Ancestor was a game you've never heard of unless you happen to work at Atari. 
The game was called Cosmos, and it never got any further than the early prototype stage in one of the labs on the ground floor of the engineering building. Cosmos was a two-player shoot-em-up game played on a field consisting of a few planets and some asteroids, said Lyle Rains, now vice president of engineering at Atari. This is in 1981, in whose office the author had been deposited. The asteroids didn't move, but while you were flying around trying to destroy the other player's ship a la Space War, I guess, mm. you could shoot at them if you wanted to. That was the most interesting part of Cosmos, unfortunately. The game died a slow, agonising death. A year and a half after the funeral of that game, Cosmos began to weigh on Lyle Rain's mind. Space Invaders had just been introduced in America, and Atari was looking for a game that would do it one better. So one day Rain's was quietly thinking about Cosmos and thinking about the asteroids, when all of a sudden he began to wonder, what if all those rocks were moving around? At first, we called it Champagne Wars, Reigns continued, because the asteroids looked sort of like bubbles. <laughs> nice. I find it really interesting that uh, a computer, sca- a computer space was uh, a, a, an example that was released, of course, that there were many attempts to sort of commercialize uh, what was, in fact, a MIT science project, right? The, uh, the sp- space war. That sort of branched off in all sorts of interesting directions. So we've already talked about the visuals in terms of the tech but what about the aesthetic appeal so bear in mind not all video games were in color at this point so this was resolutely you want to call it black and white and certainly when it's recreated on things like the ps1 and ps2 versions you could say it's a black and white game but because of the nature of the vector monitor it was more like kind of electric blue yeah Mm. yeah yeah it was like play it was like interacting with neon lights so it didn't feel like a dull monochrome, like an Atari Sprint 2 kind of game. It wasn't that sort of black and white. It was like, it just looked like ink black space and neon bright asteroids and spaceships and flying saucers, of course. Mm. And it, yeah, it was just hugely appealing. But it also had, Mikhail and I were talking on our Slack channel this week about, um, I think, was it Jesse as well? I can't remember. We were talking about the loneliness of space games. Oh, no, it was, it was um, Jacob, wasn't yeah. it? Jacob Geller. Artificial talking loneliness. Artificial loneliness. Yeah, one of Jacob's uh, latest videos. We're talking about the. there's a certain particular kind of feeling of isolation and, and loneliness that went with late 70s, early 80s video games, that inky blackness yeah. to the screen. And, Heavy and, and the, oppressive blackness. Yeah, right. Yeah. Which TVs, again, modern TVs are still trying to match the blackness of vector monitors and CRT monitors. And they're, they're getting closer with um, QLED and things like that. Mm-hmm. But it's, it's interesting that, um, that that in itself was appealing. It felt like, again, to try to get into the mind of a little kid playing those games back in the 70s and, and playing at home in, in the 80s. It felt like there was an impossible amount of something unimaginably exciting going on inside behind the monitor kind of thing because this is the interesting thing about cathode ray tubes is that uh you know we're used to um tv screens being a producer of light Uh, in that sense a crt is no exception but Mm -hmm. it all it it produces blackness at the same time it produces darkness through its light which is uh it's like a gigantic oxymoron let's talk about the audio uh this is a huge part, I think, of the appeal of the game. Pew, pew, pew. I think this game may have been the first that really had something. It, so you can fire four shots at a time in this game, rapid mm. fire compared to other, other games of the time, like Galaxian, one bullet, Space Invaders, one bullet, Asteroids, 
four bullets, pew, 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 and it goes pew, 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 and it's very high-pitched. Mm. And it's particularly in contrast to the deep, bassy thrum of the thrust noise and the sort of constant heartbeat that's going on in the background. It, I was definitely thinking of it in comparison to Space Invaders because it was the game in some ways was a response to Space Invaders and trying to be a, mm. a Space Invaders beater. Yeah. And one thing I had never noticed and I think is kind of funny in retrospect is I the sounds I think are great, but I, it is one of the weaker part of the games that it has the accelerating heartbeat from Space Invaders, but it doesn't really seem to tie into the actual dramatic arc of the game. Yeah. Right? Whereas mm-hmm. in Space Invaders, it you know you start with the slow heartbeat as the invaders speed up it speeds up and it's like exactly matching, you know, the tension on the screen. Yeah. Asteroids kind of copied that, but when it's going bum, 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 there's like one asteroid on the screen and you keep trying to shoot it and like it's this weird stalemate moment. And I was I was thinking like, oh, you know, do am, am I on a timer here? Like, uh, what, what's going on? Why is it sounding so intense all of a sudden? And uh, yeah, no, it's basically the end of the screen is nearing. And you've just got a few debris or rocks left to shoot. And it gets more intense, not so much because there are fewer rocks, but because it's harder to hit the final one rock, which is often moving at quite a pace across the screen at whatever angle. And the longer you leave it, the more saucers come on. And if it's the little saucers... They're evil and they're hard yeah. to hit and they will kill you. It's funny you talk about the uh, isolation because the sound of the pew pew always reminded me of, um, is it like the radar sound in submarines? You know, when you look, get sonar. old submarine movies. Uh, yeah, like the old sonar sound. It's, um, yes. it's always reminded me very, very much similar, of like, yeah. hearing that in uh, like moved old war movies and stuff. Yeah, and again, that's one of the things which even playing it on emulation, whatever format, console or computer or whatever, one of the things that, I always think it's very important that they get right, and they usually do on the emulation, whether it's Digital Eclipse or it's Code Mystics behind the recent, uh, the more recent releases. That incredibly bassy uh, boost sound is really important, and it actually kind of connects you to the feeling that because there's there's so much so so much physics going on. That's bad English, but um, and the fact that the inertia and and monitoring how much you thrust because. Again, as a kid, the reason you didn't push the thrust button, as well as it just being more complicated, was that if you pushed it for more than a couple of seconds, you would go careening off at yeah. any angle. You fell, fell out of control all of a sudden. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, you can go so fast in this game. I don't know if it, I know on the raster versions you can go so fast that it looks like there are multiple versions of your ship kind of streaking across the screen. I guess that doesn't work the same way on Vector, does it? Probably. <laughs> yeah, I haven't tried it for a long time. Um, and obviously the other thing that's changed in terms of the way we play it, I mentioned the the original kind of control panel layout. And if you had one of the original cabinets with the original art, marquee, bezel and all that stuff, um, and these buttons kind of all spread out neatly labeled until the, the you know, cigarettes melted them and, and whatever, it was... It was intimidating to a child who'd only played Left, Right and Fire, Space Invaders or whatever. There was no joystick. There was no spinning dial on the original coin-up. It was just all buttons. Mm. Playing it again now, it's it seems less intimidating because we've got used to, you know, massively multi-button control schemes. We, we regularly hold controllers with, what, like 16 buttons on at a time and use them all in conjunction with one another. But again, c- try to cast your minds back to 1979 and actually think, it's actually this. This is do, I'm doing stuff my brain has never done before. 
It looks the, the panel looks like one of those uh, modern uh, hitbox controllers, which are basically arcade sticks without sticks. And uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like you see for Smash particularly. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it was something I had never thought about before. But it is. I wonder why they didn't go with a paddle instead of the buttons because they had paddles on breakout. Around, yeah. yeah, they were using yeah. them, uh, and it seemed like the natural thing. And I'm wondering if it was yes. simply well. Computer space and space war and all these games had sort of the button set up, so they just you know yeah. continued on with that. Or, or there's a bit of a almost survival horror like you have it, you can't rotate around fast, right? And mm-hmm. like, yeah, definitely the physics of the game is set up to make you feel like you're not exactly in perfect control. Mm. And yeah, I I wasn't able to find <laughs> anything one way or the other on like is this a gameplay decision or just cuz Blasteroids the later one is a, yeah. a paddle and you can spin around very fast. And the some of the the games that it inspired had uh, paddles as well. Or maybe it was just they didn't have the parts at the time. It could be something like that. Like, you know, sometimes these things are born out of what have you got in the workshop where we've got loads of buttons <laughs> spare. So, yeah. You know, who knows? Over the past week getting uh, into these games um I thought I had been playing too much Resident Evil, but the turning, the shooting, the feeling surrounded by enemies that close in yeah. faster than you feel uh, comfortable to handle really reminded me of, uh, yeah. of those games, yeah, yeah, actually. Yeah. yeah, it's uh, yeah. It's, it's very much so, like, the, the, you know, the, 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 the turning around and prioritizing threats from different, uh, coming yeah. from different angles. And maybe that's even more so the case in Mindstorm, which is a little bit different. It's not exactly uh, an Asteroids mm. clone. But we'll Not get sure. onto that later. It's purely my uh, my own th- thoughts on it. But um, as precision seems to have been such an important thing, which is why like why they chose the vector monitor. Mm. I wonder if the buttons are something to do with the actual sheer precision of control. That you know, like it's digital, isn't it? So you know you've got like one press will turn your ship one one sort of degree one degree of yeah. rotation. Um, yeah. So I wonder if that's possible. Like maybe. as Jesse says, maybe yeah. a gameplay uh, led decision. Yeah, and of course it's different. It tends to be different now. Obviously, if you play it on MAME or something, you get to set it up yourself. But generally, if you play it on one of the home consoles, and this has been the case since I think I bought my first Atari compilation in the mid-90s, which had Asteroids on it. Obviously, that was a digital D-pad then, but yeah, it was just left and right on the D-pad and one button you know, that you was just neatly under your thumb for fire and another for hyperspace and another for thrust. And it was it was a lot a lot more manageable it felt a lot lot easier to play uh, at home despite the yeah some of the shortcomings of the the visual presentation yeah so those rocks then fly about the screen um, they break into smaller rocks so the the larger they start off big you're a little pointy triangle ship uh, you fire up to four bullets at a time out of your nose cone the rocks start off pretty huge intimidatingly so but as you blast them satisfyingly into little chunks, they get smaller and faster and worth more points. Yeah. It's not as if you would not choose to shoot them, but there is every time you blast an asteroid, there's an element of the risk and reward, right? Yeah, because the, the larger rocks take up more real estate on the screen so they can make you feel really, um, you know, uh, encapsulated, encapsulated and crowded. Well, so there's less to keep track of if you... exactly. Yeah. yeah. So that's a very mm. interesting uh, sort of trade-off that you're you're making. What I I was observing the behavior of the asteroid rocks a little bit closer playing uh, in the last couple of days, and it's interesting that it's not so much 
a physics-based system, or that would have surprised me, where it's mm. actually actually the object that breaks down into smaller chunks, but it, the the rock disappears for a sec, and then it creates it creates basically a spawn point uh, and creates two or three yeah. new new rocks on the spot that yes. fly off in different directions. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's not as I mean, it probably the the processor wouldn't have been up to kind of actually breaking these rocks apart realistically. I'm not sure if a game. I don't know if any of the many many spiritual successes and follow-ups has actually gone down the kind of 100% physics route with this, where it's actually enabled you to shoot a line through an asteroid and then break, you know, and then wherever mm. it kind of cuts it apart, it then leaves those two chunks. That would, but that would be pretty awesome. That actually. would be interesting. Yeah. Done it. Generally they do go, the, the, the spawned ones go in the same direction as the one you, you shot at. Mm. Uh, so like it, there's a mimicking of some, physics there yeah, right it's true yeah. the inertia uh, and the the yeah the um what's the word the trajectory seems to it feels logical so when you break a big asteroid into two smaller ones it doesn't they don't suddenly fly off at completely at odds with where they've been going mm. if you've got a big one coming towards you and you start to blast it apart they seem to come apart and they just start to split slightly but they'll still continue in the general yeah. direction of of which they were going. So for instance, you can't, unless you're very lucky, I think there's a certain amount of randomness in it or procedural number crunching going on. But if you position yourself in front, say, you know, half a screen away from a large asteroid, if you just hammer the the fire button and don't move, the chances are that one of the chunks will probably end up near you if you don't blast, if you don't blast everything away, which is what made it deadly to do what we were doing (laughs) back in the day of sitting in the screen and being too scared to, to thrust and only managing to rotate left, right and fire and occasionally stabbing that hyperspace button, but generally too scared to do that. Mm. I wonder if there's a no thrust world record for the arcade. <laughs> yeah, probably. Uh, and the thing that re- which really scuppers you, even if you manage to get through a few, you know, I don't know, half a minute, two minutes without thrusting, uh, it'll be the sources that get you yeah. in the end. Not the big sources, because uh, we've got more on saucer behavior later, but there's two sources, big and small. The big ones are just a, a minor nuisance and not worth as many points. The small ones are by far the highest scoring item in the game. A thousand points a hit, but they aim for where they think you're going to be. And if you don't move, that's where you are. Exactly. So. This, this is so interesting because the small saucers actually force you to move that you, so that you can't stay in what you think think is a strategic safe spot because the middle of the screen is probably the best place to be because you have the most time to react to everything that uh, that's happening around you but yeah you can't you can't stay there once the small sauces uh, start appearing i guess so what i want to ask you guys in the panel is whenever i play this game and uh, i've had it on xbox live arcade for the last 10 years or so they released double pack of asteroids and asteroids deluxe and i just upgraded just now in ahead of this show to the more recent releases on those compilations and um and every time i fire it up i still i I still get the same satisfaction from playing it as i did back then more so in that i can actually try and play it properly now and fly about and try to survive as long as possible and even do a bit of score chasing but i still think the actual for me the actual act of blasting the big rocks into smaller rocks and avoiding the chunk is just inherently enjoyable and satisfying yeah i think sometimes we go back and play these games for the show and um and it's like you're playing it for uh more sort of um academic reasons you know like to um 
to sort of remind yourself of it and to yeah. learn all about it. And sometimes you have fun with it, sometimes you don't. And I totally agree with you that Asteroids is one where you kind of forget that you're playing it for uh, for those reasons. You just, you just end up playing it just for the sheer fun of it. Yeah, I, I maintain that the core of appeal of a 2D shooter is uh, that, that endorphin hit when, once your projectile connects with a target. Yeah. Uh, and the effect in Asteroids is inherently satisfying, as you said, because it's, you, you see the effect that it has on screen beyond a mere explosion. It's something breaks up, up into smaller parts. So Jesse, you say you've probably been less of a kind of actual fan of the game? Yeah, I mean, I enjoyed going back to it. I, I, I get an exactly medium amount of fun out of it. <laughs> it's, okay. I like it. It's good. But it's, I mean, the most, I think you're getting at what is to me the most satisfying thing about it. And I kind of, in a weird way, think of this game as not exactly a prototype, but Ed Log also co-created Centipede, which is a game I really yeah. do get into. And I'm mm. always lobbing to have it on the Game Center trackball cabinet. And it's the one game mm. I'll generally have the high score in and all of that. I like Centipede more, but I do think Asteroids gestures towards why I love that game. And it's basically there's two things. One is that they are the first arcade games where you really get that almost Tetris-like loop of everything you do to, you know, try to solve the problem in front of you creates the landscape in some way, right? In Centipede, every time you shoot a piece of the centipede, it becomes a mushroom, and the mushroom is what the centipede itself bounces off of. So there's like a recursive causality there. Uh, and, an ast- and, and, and there's also like an ecosystem of all the other bugs. Uh, Asteroids, I don't think is as intense, but it, it is the, you know, the first game more than like Space Invaders or Pac-Man, which are kind of its competitors at the time, mm. where you do, you know, you are affecting the landscape by doing the action that is solving your problem. But Asteroids, I feel like does have that a little more in, yeah, you get to kind of pick your environment by whether you just try to take one out, you mm. know, et cetera, et cetera. The other thing it really has in common for me with Centipede is they're both games where you can like get yourself into scrapes and maybe get yourself out, yeah, right? right? That you can kind of screw yourself up and have like a small chance of survival because you did blast too many things. Now there's a bunch of asteroids going around, but like you might get out of it. Like in Centipede, if the if the head gets to the bottom of the screen, it starts spawning new heads, and you're basically screwed. But maybe you know you still got a shot. Mm. And like that, yeah. I find really interesting in terms of the dramatic arc of the mm. game. Yeah, you know, I think where it loses me is that that arc does curve downwards, uh, where it is like mop up and watch out for saucers. The physics mm. of it are just disconcerting. Like, I, I I, appreciate them. But yeah, I mean, we'll talk about Mindstorm and just the fact that, like, I can thrust and move around in that game without careening off mm. makes a big difference. Yeah, yeah it's uh, another thing I'd like to add is that it's interesting that you sort of get to control uh, the dynamics of the game, how, the, how the, the playing field is organized by choosing your targets. And it occurred to me today when I was playing the original Asteroids that you get to effectively turn uh, the screen into not bullet hell, but uh, asteroid hell, basically, if you yeah. just decide to shoot all the bigger yeah. uh, bigger rocks. And there's a lot of stuff flying around there. Of course, by far not as organized as a modern bullet hell shooter, like in uh, beautiful fanning patterns and, and curtains. But uh, mm. definitely you feel like you're... Your screen real estate had uh, has just uh, been diminished yeah. significantly. And here you've got no tiny hitbox that's hidden in the middle of your ship. Your whole ship is a hitbox, yeah. pretty much. So, but yes, you do get, as Jesse says, you get those bits, those Millennium Falcon esque moments 
where you just veer away from a tiny rock at the, the last second or whatever and you feel like Han Solo with a tiny pointy spaceship. Um, yeah. And uh, yeah, lots of those moments. And I still have to say, you know, I'm a deeply below average asteroids player, but I still don't, I mean, and this is probably why, but I still don't have a kind of set strategy. But what I will say is that even compared to some of its uh, kind of peers, games around at the time, even though ostensibly you're doing something very repetitive, you're clearing a screen of rocks that break into smaller rocks, no two games are ever the same because of the the kind of the nature of mm. the movement of the asteroids across the screen, the way they, the way they're just mathematically ge- geometrically tracking about the place, and because of the number of variables that once you start smashing the asteroids up, and once the sources start coming into play and firing the odd bullet towards you, like there's the chances of you know you're not going to have an R type. Like this is as far away from something like R type, where where every good game is going to be almost kind of moment for moment the same. Yeah, this is you're going to be in different places on the screen, no matter you know from from the second you are warped in. And by the way, mention just we should just mention this is the first game I can remember where it was obviously doing a calculation before it put your ship on screen to say if I put the ship on screen here right now the player's going to die and that will be an unfair life loss. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Sometimes you have to wait a little bit after exactly. uh, your ship blows up before it gets yeah. uh, gets respawned. Yeah. You know, you, you can fire a, a, your little cluster of four bullets pretty quickly if you want. Yeah. Do, 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 do. But uh, you again, as a, as a little kid who doesn't really understand these things, I remember firing at these things and thinking, but I keep missing them. And that's because you, you know, you soon realize you've got to lead the target. Later, we're going to a little bit deeper into tactics and techniques. But yeah, I mean, the, the surefire way to hit a target is to actually move yourself within its uh, trajectory and shoot, shoot at it when it's un- oncoming. Yeah. But that's, of course, putting yourself in a lot of danger as well yes. at the same time. Yes. Yeah. I prefer to generally be shooting at rocks as they come across my path, not towards the yeah. po- point of my But the, li- my the limit of your shot means that you have to be pretty accurate. You can't just yes. uh, fire away and you- you'll miss a lot of shots that way as well. And yeah. that's absolutely, <laughs> it's bound to happen. And one of the key facets of this game that we must mention is um, space is continual. So every side of the screen wraps around to every other side of the screen. So you can come on one side and go off the other, or go off the other and come off, come on the other, go off the top, come on the bottom and left and right. And you can fire across as well. And that will open up um, certain possibilities of also very, uh, very flash play of deliberately shooting things which aren't even yeah, like it, it to somebody who'd never seen it before, it was probably a bit head scrambling back in the in the day. Like, but you're over there and you're shooting the thing over there. Um, I guess, yeah, it was all kind of there were no rules. Um, it could have it could have been bordered, you know. It could have had a, there could have been a border that you bounced off or something or crashed into. But they went with this open plan space. I do know that on the Atari VCS, I was just listening to a, a slightly tangential, but a podcast about the game Pitfall and that it was difficult for them to disable the wraparound. The wraparound was a default on the 2600 uh, as yeah, the way right. the screen worked. And like in combat, if you didn't have a level with a border, it automatically wrapped around and there were the airplane levels. And that's 1977. So yeah. they were clearly like, it, but right, it wasn't in Space Invaders. Pac-Man's interesting. Because there's like a two second or a half, I don't know, about a second where you're like, 
in some metaphysical other space because you're, yes. you're wrapping <laughs> yeah. around, but they're in some <laughs> celestial tunnel that no one can see, but you, you know, you exist. Yeah. But yeah, it is. Yeah. It, I mean, I, that's another thing I was not able to get good at is, and that's why weirdly you huddle in the center, right? That's, yeah. that's the safe spot or safest. Back to David Owen's Esquire article from 1981. As impressive as the sales and collection figures are, one of the most intriguing facts about Asteroids is not how many people are playing it, but which ones. Continuing a trend begun by its immediate predecessors, Asteroids has helped open up the coin-op market to a brand new clientele. Not just chain-smoking teenagers with time on their hands, but responsible, well-paid men in their 20s, 30s, 40s and even 50s who in some cases haven't seen the inside of an amusement arcade since the days when pinball games had pins. Asteroids is a drug, says Doug McIntyre, an international marketing manager at Time Inc. When you play the game, the rest of the world ceases to exist. You can't even hear what's going on around you. People could be breaking chairs over each other's heads and you wouldn't notice. Eventually, you get to the point where you're not even concentrating anymore, says John Fisher, a production manager at Warner Amex Satellite Entertainment Company. You reach some kind of state of being at one with the machine. Sometimes when I walk out of here, it's almost like I'm high, not falling down drunk or anything, but I'll be in just a little bit of a daze, maybe an inch or so off the ground. For the last four months, I've been an asteroids addict myself, says the author. Being addicted to a video game isn't so disruptive as being addicted to, say, heroin, but my asteroids dependence has brought about definite changes in my lifestyle. I can't pass a bar anymore without peering into the doorway and searching the darkness for the faint grey glow of an asteroids monitor. Sometimes I'm stricken with cravings so strong I'm unable to control them. Not long ago, my wife and I, along with four or five friends, stepped into an ice cream parlour in Greenwich Village for a late dessert... Just inside the door was an asteroids machine. While the others ordered Sundays, I emptied my pockets into the game. When I finally tore myself away, I was alone. An unfamiliar tale there that none of us <laughs> can empathise with from, from 1981, I'm sure. Yeah, I, I almost got there, but I don't think uh, it's realistic to ex expect any... Um any uh, asteroids machine just randomly in any kinds of establishment around here. <laughs> it would have to be one hell of a game to stop me wanting ice cream as well. Yeah. <laughs> these days, especially. So there were also some programmers notes uh, included in this article. These are from Edlog and uh, possibly Reigns as well. I'm not sure. I think it's mainly Edlog. Let's have a look at some of these. How to win at asteroids, the tactics and techniques. Number one, if you want to sound as if you know what you're doing and you play Asteroids, you can throw around some of the in-house slang that has grown up around the game. At Atari, the little flying saucer is called Mr. Bill. His big brother is Sluggo. Mr. Bill and Sluggo are also known as drones, which is a company word for the computer-controlled intelligences in video games. Turns or plays are known as lives. Interesting, that was a new terminology, an in-house way of yeah. looking at it. Each new series of asteroids is called a wall or a wave. Individual asteroids are referred to as rocks. So, saucer behaviour. Sluggo, the big one, fires at random. Mr. Bill aims. Mr. Bill knows where you are and he knows what direction you're moving in, explains Edlog. He takes this information and picks a window bounded a few degrees on each side of you and then shoots randomly inside of that. For this reason, you should never move straight at him. It makes you bigger relative to him. The farther away you are, the smaller a target you are. This is so interesting. 
I th- I do think uh, Mr. Bill induces uh, <laughs> in- induces a, 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 yeah when when I play the game it, he induces a sort of sense of panic in me almost scariest like, enemy in all of gaming <laughs> I think <laughs> not not quite sure but when you're in the moment he he definitely makes you forget about all other scary enemies Possibly of other the games nastiest little git in all of gaming yeah so the mm. the thing is I when he appears on the screen I want to start moving ara- about so that it's uh, harder uh, f- for him to get a lock on on me but there are a lot of asteroids flying around of course uh, so it's this very interesting game of uh, space control <laughs> that you that you get at that point and yeah um, it, it, you're, you're constantly making these little decisions in your head like uh, stop, thrust, go, turn um, yeah it, it, he, his appearance just uh, changes the dynamic of the game that you're playing and not only that, he gets worse yeah. Now, I have seldom, if ever, scored the points required, but the higher your score is, the more accurate Mr. Bill becomes. When your score reaches 35,000, he narrows down his firing window and increases his chances of hitting you. Thanks, programmers. <laughs> well, they got to keep it to three minutes. Uh, that, yeah. that is the, um, you know, the ideal video game length or arcade game. As we'll hear later, they definitely failed, of course, with, with some people. Not only that... Yeah, imagine how boring the game becomes if he doesn't get harder to uh, to deal with, and for somebody that's uh, that's really yes. adept at it, and uh, yep. you know. And it is interesting. In a later point, they say, contrary to what many players believe, the rocks do not speed up as the game progresses, which would be mm. the. And that actually, now that I'm thinking about, it, makes me think that the buttons instead of paddle is a real gameplay decision because you could very much go in the other direction where it gets faster and faster, but you have a paddle and you can just whip around and it becomes a pure. Re- flex yeah. game uh, mm-hmm. but they did not yeah that difficulty knob they did not adjust yeah uh, there's just more rocks as the game goes on the first wall has four the second six the third eight and all succeeding is ten in asteroids deluxe it's six seven eight nine uh, which presumably is to cope with the extra processor power required for the little enemy spaceships more of which later um, the different ones satellites whatever they're called uh, yeah, so the position, direction and speed of the rocks at the beginning of a wall are random within a certain range. As we've just said, they don't speed up as the game progresses. Every large rock contains two medium-sized rocks, each of which contains two small rocks. Smaller rocks are positioned at random within larger ones. Right, so when a moving rock breaks up, the smaller rocks that constitute it will tend to move in the same direction the larger rock was moving in, as we suggested. Uh, there is a conservation of momentum, says Edlog, although pieces will occasionally break off in the opposite direction. It's safer to fire at rocks that are moving away from your spaceship. <laughs> uh, your spaceship can fire up to four shells at a time. Once they've been fired, you can't shoot again until one of them either hits something or dies of old age. The lifetime of a shell is somewhat shorter than the time it would take it to travel all the way across the screen. (laughs) Because your ship's gun reloads every time one of your bullets hits something, you can sometimes fire in a long, satisfying stream if you aim carefully at compact clusters of rocks. Indeed, you can. If you're moving forward when you fire, your shells travel faster than they do if you're standing still. If you're moving backward, they travel more slowly. I'm not sure I'd ever clock that, but it makes perfect sense. I think the same is true as in, in Binding of Isaac as well. <laughs> How mm. odd. Close to what we'd imagine things would be, that you just don't notice it because it's consistent with with our own yeah, uh, yeah. sort of physics mindset. Yeah. 
I also yeah, yeah, yeah. lacked uh, the multitasking capability to be able to thrust and fire at the same time. When I'm thrusting, I'm really into that uh, <laughs> fo- focus on the, the mo- uh, on the motion of thrusting and uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> trying to escape from from some predicament. Edlog's space, like Albert Einstein's, is curved. Any object that disappears off one side of the screen reappears at the corresponding point on the opposite side. It is thus possible and often desirable to destroy objects by firing away from them. This fact, sadly, is one of the keys to the odious lurking strategy. In the original Asteroids, Mr. Bill does not take advantage of this wraparound effect, aiming only into the screen, even when he would have a better chance of hitting you by firing off the side. Good to know. No rock moves straight up and down or straight across the screen, unlike the Atari VCS version. (laughs) (laughs) If the rocks were allowed to do that, it would be possible to have on the screen a rock that you wouldn't be able to see. As is also true of your TV set, the the picture on an Asteroids monitor is usually somewhat larger than the screen. This means there is sometimes a fairly wide margin of invisible space around the edges of the visible image. If the rocks could travel parallel to either side of the axes, you could have one in the invisible margin and never find it unless you hit it by accident. That actually happened. I can't. I played a little bit of so many of the later ones. There's one of them, mm. maybe it was the Game Boy Color one, where that literally was happening, where I was like, well, there's, oh, there's right. no rocks anymore, but <laughs> there was one, and I just right had a blindly fire. Right. I, f- I assumed they did it like that just because it would be too easy to survive if they if they had one going straight straight across or straight vertically because you could just position yourself so that it would never hit you. I assume they moved at an angle so that there was no safe place on the screen. But that also makes sense. Maybe it's both. Okay, hyperspace. We haven't talked much about this yet. When you push the hyperspace button, you have approximately one chance in five of blowing up on re-entry, even if you rematerialize in an empty section of the screen. I mean, I came a cropper of this yesterday. Really? And I, I still think it sucks. Yeah, I'm with you there. Hi- hyperspace engines are a liability, apparently. Yeah. I mean, imagine if it was the case in the original Elite 1984, where there was one in five chance every time you came out of hyperspace, you just died and that was it. Game over. Ridiculous. (laughs) Um, Players who rely heavily on hyperspace are taking their lives into their hands. The best players use the button only in dire emergencies. I still think it's way too like I can totally buy that it puts you somewhere random on the screen and there's a chance that you merge with another asteroid and die or you you reappear somewhere where you can't possibly get out of the way in time. But just to randomly blow up on re-entry, I think, is the my least favourite part of asteroids. I mean, hyperspace is another thing that's inherited from space war. I keep uh, going back to that, uh, to that game because, uh, you know... It, Space War was a long project. It was not just a design document and it's done. You know, various people added their, their touches to the game and added their mechanics to the game. The hyperspace button was born there uh, and it was created so that lesser skilled players would still have a fighting chance. So they could sort of randomly appear and disappear, but they didn't want to make it overpowered. So it has a random, uh, yeah, sort of, sort of randomized effect on, because you, when you reappear, you're, you also are a little bit disoriented. You need to pinpoint your position again. Yeah, it's, it's one of those things that made a, a really sense uh, in yeah in in space war in asteroids it's not as great as a uh, a fit i think it's basically yeah it it fulfills the same function it's it's your desperation uh button but it functions different because uh, differently because space war is a one versus one uh game a pvp game basically yeah and they dumped it for the sequels yeah so maybe that's telling 
And at the same time, it's probably saved your ass a handful of times, though, right? Uh, yeah, I guess. When I'm when I'm brave enough to push it. That's not to say you're wrong about it being a bad mechanic, that there's some random <laughs> element. I'm not arguing that at all. Clones, it definitely seems like the least essential part, like the, mm. the Maelstrom on the Mac in the 90s or whatever. They had shields instead. Yeah. yeah it, it, it's, I just could never hit it in time. Like, by the time I realized maybe right. I should, I'm dead. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, number 14 and this guide from the programmers was if your favorite asteroids machine one day seems faster than usual the operator may have installed a modification kit to speed it up these kits increase the speed of all moving objects on the screen including your spaceship and its bullets by close to 50 percent that sounds too fast i don't know if i ever came across one of those as a kid sounds very difficult to manage yeah it sounds too snappy uh like sinistar speeds but without the ability to bounce off the rocks. So, yeah, uh, and that was tough enough. And finally, point 15, the maximum number of objects that can appear on the screen at one time is 35. 27 rocks, one drone, two drone bullets, your spaceship and four of your spaceship's bullets. With any more objects than that, the computer wouldn't have time to make the necessary calculations and the game would visibly slow down. As it is, if you get close to 35 objects, you can sometimes do things like destroy big rocks with single shots. One of the most rewarding experiences the game has to offer. Did anyone know that? I did not know that. No. Nope. I'd love to do that. I'm going to see if I can arrange that. I wonder if there's an achievement for it on any version. That would be quite cool. Hmm. Also, I wanted to mention that I'm sure there are earlier examples, but one thing that's still amuses me and impresses me about asteroids even 40 years on is the fact that the uh, enemy sources bill and sluggo are not immune to crashing into asteroids themselves no and you get points for it i also noticed you still get the score yeah yeah and they can shoot the asteroids they can help you inadvertently or hurt you yeah Yeah. (laughs) by breaking them up but effectively, by breaking up all the big rocks, you make it harder for uh, Mr. Bill and Sluggo to move around the screen as well. Yep, very true. So technically, Mr. Bill could stop you from lurking if he accidentally shot the last asteroid? Oh, yeah. But that would be unlikely, I guess, if it's aiming for you, the chant. But it, but it could, yeah. Yeah, it, I mean, it fires. It fires quite a lot of shots, doesn't it, Mr. Bill? It's like pew, pew, pew. So yep. it's pretty, it's pretty like, full on. It's not as fast as you, but it's... Fast enough. And yeah, we haven't said that they, the, the, I don't know what the, the timing is, but the, the ships start to c- seem to come on quicker as the stage goes on. I don't know if that's detailed anywhere, but it certainly feels to me like there's more sources towards the end, but maybe it just feels that no, way. No, there is. I did read that. I can't remember where. Maybe it was the right. retro gamer piece. Yeah, sure. So lurking, the odious technique as described by the programmers. Uh, So what had happened, Eugene Lipkin, the president of Atari's, the then president, I should say, of Atari's coin-operated game division, told the author again, this is from uh, David Owen's piece, uh, was that a player had been smart enough to understand the movement and the programming on the product and had then come up with the idea of how to work around it. It took about three months for that to happen. Then, all of a sudden, we began hearing the same thing from all over. People had figured out there was a safe place on the screen. What Lipkin meant by a safe place on the screen requires an explanation. One of the principal challenges in asteroids is a tiny flying saucer, that's our friend Bill, that zooms across the screen towards the end of every onslaught of rocks and fires bullets at the player's spaceship. 
this saucer, if destroyed, is worth 1,000 points. But because it has a better than average aim, it's a formidable adversary. Or at least it was, until players began to figure out that if they picked off all but one or two little asteroids, they could safely lurk around the edges of the screen and wait for the saucer to appear. If it appeared on the side where they were lurking, they would fire quickly and destroy it before it had a chance to get off a shot. If it appeared on the other side, they would fire off the screen in the opposite direction, bullets can wrap around, and send a couple of quick salvos the saucer's tailpipe, and they would keep on doing this until they had accidentally destroyed the remaining little asteroids, causing a new onslaught to begin, or crashed into the saucer, or earned 10 million points, or simply fallen asleep. As long as one or two rocks were left on the screen, the little saucer would continue to appear. Playing the lurking game isn't as easy as it sounds. It takes an alert player with a steady eye to pull it off. But once a player gets the hang of it, Asteroids changes completely. In fact, it ceases to exist. As wow. most people who are familiar with Asteroids know, there are essentially two kinds of players. Those who play the game and those who lurk. Lurking is a weakling strategy, a method mediocre players use to inflate their scores. It's also extremely boring to watch. It's like fishing with dynamite. Happily, the people at Atari dislike lurkers almost as much as I do. What we've done, Lipkin told me, chuckling evilly, is put together a new program in which, but I'd rather not give it away, suffice to say that this new feature is available to operators in the form of a computer chip that can be inserted into the printed circuit boards of existing Asteroids machines. This chip is proving to be a popular little item too, since operators don't make as much money when the games last 22 hours as they do when they last 90 minutes. <laughs> 90 minutes. So that's amazing. So they... Basically, they released a physical anti-cheat. I mean, cheat, cheat's harsh because it's not really a cheat so much as it's a, an exploit, a strategy, a tactic. I remember reading about this first in Amiga Power. They, they gave away a public domain clone, like a, a real you know, attempt at making as close to a copy of Asteroids as possible, but on the Amiga, but for free. And I played that a fair amount. And I remember reading in the pages, it was Stuart Campbell who said, uh, we've been practicing our hunting strategy, they called it, rather than lurking. And they described it. And so I tried to do it. And then I tried to do it again on the Atari uh, Classics version on the PS1. And it's really hard because <laughs> little Bill's still a git. So uh. little Bill still shoots you as soon as it appears. But yes, I have on a few occasions managed to net myself like an extra, like maybe two or 3,000 points by doing this. But really... It can be worth it to get yourself to the 10k for an extra life. Does anyone else play this odious game? <laughs> it was little called uh, How to Win at Video Games. Yeah, it was published in 1982. Uh, I had the revision that had um, extra info to help with like the Atari 2600 conversions, but um, I haven't wow. been able to find that version. But I've got the older one, which is just about the arcade games, and it's got a page on Asteroid Strategy, and um, mm. and they say, as the experts know, there is just one strategy. <laughs> Learn it; it's basically simple. So, so for um, people that were chasing scores at the time, obviously that was the one strategy to go for. Yep, mm. right until they fixed it. Uh, but yes, arcade operator. I wonder how many arcade. I wonder if you could fit both the fifty percent Spood Beast and the Cheat Fixer and make the hardest game of Asteroids possible. Does anybody know what exactly that uh, add-on for a circuit board does? Doesn't say, does it? Really? No. And this book's from nineteen eighty-two, which is the year after that interview. So, so possibly it didn't actually do what <laughs> what it was intended. Yeah. Who knows? Or it didn't, or it didn't. Yeah, or it just didn't get widely rolled out. I suppose the nature of any physical add-on is that 
they probably charged for it. I wonder, I'm probably wrong, but maybe Asteroids Deluxe was actually that because they would certainly do, I don't know, is that an entirely separate game or is it? It is. I think it is a separate game. I think you you might as well call it a sequel. Right. Mm. Uh, There were definitely these. I know that, uh, I mean, the the guys who made Miss Pac-Man, which started as one of these illegal, like an illegal mod board. Yeah, they made Mm. one for Missile Command that basically did the same thing of like speeding it up and uh, Mm. yeah. Bootleg ROMs, yeah. Mm. And uh, so, yeah, I think. Uh, this wasn't too uncommon, uh, but right, it was definitely uh, you had to buy a whole new piece of hardware. You can just flip a switch. There's maybe a chance that this um, that the chip didn't actually get into arcade owners' ha- like because this is talking about it as if it's something that they're going to do. So possibly mm. it yeah. it got extended into Asteroids Deluxe and a f- new machine rather than being the sort of post out yeah. chip. Yeah, possible. Yeah, it's uh, the the quote is this chip is proving to be a popular little item too, but that could just be but that could just be based on them trying to sell it to them. Yeah. Like we're we're going to make this or yeah. they or, might have literally shipped like three out to like some of the most popular arcades. We just don't know, do we? Yeah. Yeah. Talking of high scores, high score attacking, according to the Guinness World Records video games edition two thousand and eight, Asteroids was the very first ever video game to allow players to create a personalized top 10 table for that day's scores. Yes, you can rotate left and right to scroll through the initials of the uh, the English alphabet. Press hyperspace to enter your initials. I, I've got all the, the records on my uh, local <laughs> yeah. local version. Yes, of course. The, <laughs> uh, the advent of online means that we get to, in more recent versions, we get to compare scores with friends and stuff, which is cool. Yeah. Or disheartening. Or disheartening. Andrew Elmore, <laughs> our friend on Twitter who works at Bungie, hello Andrew, says, it's one of the only games I can consistently set the high score on at my local arcade, and I always just set it to ass, A-S-S, for asteroids, because I am an idiot child. I believe Andrew, but isn't maybe that uh, that uh, uh, word didn't get, uh, get singled out, but uh, there was actually some work done on the game to get uh, naughty, uh, naughty words oh, off the, yeah. of the, of the leaderboard. I think, gets yeah. changed, yeah. Yeah, yeah. so mm, yeah, I've forgotten may- that. maybe ass was not deemed naughty enough or not thought of. It's not too rude, is it? It's PG. Uh, so yeah, score chasing history. On February the 6th, 1982, Leo Daniels of Carolina Beach, I should say, North Carolina, set a world record score of 40,101,910 points. On November 13th of the same year, 15-year-old Scott Safran of Cherry Hill, New Jersey, set a new record at, uh, well, a bit more than that, 41 million odd. In 1998, to congratulate Safran on his accomplishment, the Twin Galaxies Intergalactic scoreboard searched him for uh, searched for him for four years until 2002, when it was discovered that sadly he died in an accident in 1989. In a ceremony in Philadelphia on April 27, 2002, Walter Day of Twin Galaxies presented an award to the surviving members of Safran's family commemorating his achievement. I hope they appreciated that and didn't think it was massively inappropriate. Uh, (laughs) Yes. Uh, On April the 5th, 2010, bringing us up to date, John McCallum, well, Kind of. John McAllister broke Safran's record with a high score of 41,838,740 in a 58-hour internet live stream. Wow. I mean, that's longer than I've ever stayed awake, let alone played 
played a, a, a very difficult video game. Funny enough, that How to Win a uh, Video Games book actually mentions people staying on, on the game for over 50 hours, and this is back in 1982, so that must have been a thing. Uh, and according to Wikipedia as well, the true world record for asteroids, and I assume, I think that's because, yeah, I'm not sure why it refers to it, this one separately, but anyway, it says this was set in a laundromat in Hyde Park, NY. Uh, do you know it, Jesse? Yes, in Queens. <laughs> From June the 30th to July the 3rd, 1982. Proof of this was published in the July 4th edition of the Poughkeepsie Journal and can be seen in that paper in the journal archives. The score exceeded 48 million and the players, and I guess that's why it's not a record because it was a a team effort, the players involved basically walked away at the 84-hour mark. Was that walked away or collapsed? (laughs) Yeah, well, presumably, but if you can do it in shifts, then I guess that's the problem. But still. So there it is. So yeah, Asteroids was... Sequeled, yeah, I think we can call it. Although it was called Asteroids Deluxe, it's yeah. definitely a it's definitely a sequel. Two years later, designed by Dave Shepard, but obviously based heavily on the original. Key differences are we've already mentioned hyperspace is gone, and it's now replaced by a shield, a little a little vector line or bubble that appears around your craft. And if you manage to activate it in time, somehow it feels easier to me to remember to hit the shield than the hyperspace. I don't know why. Asteroids will bounce like, off you. Uh, like blocking in uh, fighting games. Well, there's no right. downside, right? You, there's not a part yes. of your brain stopping you because That's it might it. just randomly kill you. <laughs> You've nailed it, yes. <laughs> uh, and the other key difference, major difference, are the killer satellites. I love so, those. So it's like a, is it octagonal shaped or hexagonal? A craft, a group, lumbers about the screen, making a noise. Uh, they're, the sound like, effects... uh, they're like diamond-shaped, uh, as in the diamonds yeah, on a yes, pack of parts. exactly that. And then, But as you shoot them, they also break up, much like the asteroids, but in this case, they have some kind of pseudo-sentiency and they actually make yeah. a beeline for you and you have to kind of back away from them. What happens is them. that they're clustered together in one large diamond, then they break right. up into four smaller diamonds and then those mm-hmm. diamonds break up into arrows and they do yeah. the sort of the uh, dive bombing uh, attack towards you. Yeah. And they're really challenging to deal with, but I love them all the same uh, because I find them more fun to fight than Mr. Bill, for example. Uh, we were talking about these sort of... Um, you know, those, those clutch moments in the original uh, asteroids. But I think the killer satellites satellites make for much more clutch moments where you get these through the eye of the needle sort of moments where you mm. all, you know, you, you take a big risk and you sort of thrust forward through an opening in the group and then turn around and shoot them. You almost get a sort of a early dogfighting feel from uh, from dealing with them, you know, where you uh, reposition yourself and uh, try to outs- outsmart them and outfly them. By and large, this one usually appears where asteroids appears. They usually come as a as a as a duo. Interestingly, on the the Atari flashback compilation, the current Gen One, it reproduces the uh, behind the game kind of art. So it's got a kind of a, a, a drawn sort of sci-fi scape, which is uh, which makes it quite distinct. But overall, I get the feeling that this game. Is fine and fun, but it didn't replace the original in the hearts and minds of Asteroids fanatics. And I don't think it's ever quite had the same iconic sort of um, aura as the original. But maybe that's purely because it's a sequel. It's probably just me, but I find this game more addictive than the original. And uh, yeah, yeah, I, I couldn't stop playing when I was going at it. 
your ship looks different. My high score is higher than yours at the moment, Mikhail. We'll work on this. <laughs> Conversions came home for this one. Uh, there were there were a lot of versions of asteroids, which we'll get into, but um, there were just a couple for this. The BBC Micro, 1984, and the Atari ST in 1987. Space Jewel is the one that I'm probably least familiar with. I've been picking it up the last few days. Uh, this was 1983. I'd never really thought of it as Asteroids 3, but it kind of is really, isn't it? It's a bit different. Uh, it's got four designers, including Dave Shepard, who worked on Deluxe, but uh, Rick Maurer, Owen Rubin, Steve Calfee. This is colourful uh, compared to the predecessors. Uh, Deluxe was still vector, single colour vectors. This is a Tempest-like looking game in the sense that it's got yellow and red and cyan and probably eight colours or something and colour cycling and various things. And indeed, a wacky tethered ship co-op mode that could also be played in one player. So you can play as two ships with a friend. You can play a versus kind of mode, hence the name Space Duel. But you can also play a single player kind of game where you yeah, like you're almost at war with yourself, like trying to tug tug the other ship around. The asteroids are now sort of geometric shapes. They're multicoloured. There's little stars that flit around. There's a bonus section where you try to add to your score by destroying little stars at the end of a wave. It's a few tweaks and it's actually, I think it's quite cool and fun. Yeah, I, I, I literally had never seen Asteroids Deluxe in the wild but I would see Space Duel fairly frequently around that oh, really? time. Okay. Yeah. I thought it was even rarer. No, I, it might just be New Jersey or whatever, but like I remember yeah. running across several cocktail cabinets of it. And yeah, I would definitely, it's fun. It's It, it looks weird. And yeah, I like the rotating psychedelic uh, geometric shapes. Uh, and yeah, the, the one player tethered mode, like you, you get two shots. So, but like, yeah, mm. it's, a, it's a bit of a like three-legged race in a way. And it's just kind of weird and interesting. Worth, worth at least poking at. Definitely. And again, yes, it's, uh, it's available on the Atari Flashback Volume 1 for PS4, Xbox One and Switch. You can also find it on the Atari Anthology on PC, Xbox Original and PS2. And it was also, was it? I didn't remember it being on the Atari Anniversary Edition on PS1, but apparently so. Final official sequel came a long, long time ago, um, 1987. Uh, Ed Rotberg picked up where they'd left off, but kind of didn't. This feels like a different game. Four years on, it's raster graphics, it's solid graphics, it's uh, it's sprites, it's it's kind of looks more like a 1987 game. It's got the spinner dial instead of the rotate buttons. You can transform your ship from the speedy type to the heavy type and the medium type in between. You've got a shield and you've got energy, uh, armor and fuel. You've got power-ups because it's 1987. <laughs> you've got, uh, you can choose your path through the game by choosing different levels and screens to go to, which is a bit like uh, Gravatar, which is an Atari vector game that came in between. It had a boss called Mucor, excellently. Multiplayer co-op. Mark Hoog, friend of the show from the forum, says, I can't say much about the Asteroids series other than 1987's Asteroids sequel, Blasteroids. I'm interjecting here. It doesn't, it works if you've got an American accent. It works if you've got a Northern English accent. It doesn't work for the likes of me and Dan, because <laughs> Blasteroids. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so Blasteroids is the very first video game I ever played, says Mark. I vaguely remember seeing the box in a store featuring Yoda meets Dog Chew Toy Final Boss Mucor on the cover. This was back when box art featured spectacular artwork meant to spark your imagination, sometimes deceivingly so. 
If memory serves, I persuaded my mother to buy the game for me, since my parents had bought a 286 PC not long before, and there weren't many, there weren't any games on it yet. I don't remember whether I played the game for days, weeks or months, but I know I played it a lot because there wasn't anything else to play. Time felt way different back then. Blasteroids had all the things that would keep me coming back to video games in the decades to come, learning the mechanics, getting good and the excitement that came with progress, discovering and marvelling at new areas, power-ups and enemies and defeating the final boss, that final boss in the ultimate test of skill. It's been too long to say anything substantial about the game itself, but for me, this is the one that started it all. Nice. Uh, it is definitely a very 1987 game, by the way, because your shields are oh, constantly yeah. draining over time because it wants you to put in more quarters. It's it's very post-Gauntlet. Yes, yes. This was yeah just around the time of uh, Zybots as well, which is has a similar thing, uh, which was kind of a 3D Gauntlet game. Yeah. Rampage, like we spoke about before. Yeah, right. But yeah, I used to put, I remember finding this on the pier, the Brighton Palace pier in, in, at the time. Graphics looked pretty amazing at the time. So I still loved Vector Graphics Asteroids, even, even though it was retro by this point, 1987. But the rocks in Blasteroids had a sort of digitized look to them. I think maybe this was the tech that would go on to be used in Primal Rage, maybe that kind of thing. Or whether they were just, I, I don't know if they were actually scanned in, digitized or, or, you know, based on pictures or models, but they, they had that look about them. And that was appealing. The trouble was the game was, I just found it incredibly difficult. And I think maybe, I'm going to say, it, I think they over-egged the pudding a bit. <laughs> they added a lot of stuff where they could have just held back on some of the new features, maybe. There were conversions. It came home, as we already heard, MS-DOS. Imageworks handled it, which was a label of the Activision that existed at the time. Uh, also came to Amiga and Amstrad and Spectrum, Commodore 64, Atari ST, and even the MSX. I'm sure there's a comparison video out there somewhere. They kept arriving until 1990. One thing I'd managed to completely miss, which is disappointing, is that when LEGO Dimensions came out, for the last-gen consoles and the PS4 and Xbox One as well. In 2015, they released a Midway, uh, an Atari sort of pack and bundle for LEGO Dimensions, including a lot of emulated versions of old games. And this is the only time that emulated Blasteroids has found its way officially home. Really? Um, but I don't know what I need to buy and play Lego Dimensions. That was the one with the toys. Do I need to buy toys? I don't want to buy toys just to play Blasteroids. I think you can buy a digital version of the pack. I could be wrong, but um, I did yeah. look into it at the time and it just seemed a bit too much outlay for something that, um, well, if yeah. I'd known that um, Blasteroids was on there, it would have been different, but it felt like something that I already yeah. had numerous ways of playing those games. So I never yeah, actually went yeah, for it. sure, same. Uh, any other memories of Blasteroids? I was so looking forward to going back and playing this because as a what 10 or 11-year-old at the time, I really loved it. And then um, it was it, I didn't find it this time as much fun to play as... Go no. I, I was going back to Asteroids and Asteroids Deluxe for fun, whereas yes. this one I had a couple of goes at just to sort of remind myself. I really thought I was going to get right into it. And um, again, I think it's the flash and the um, mm. pizzazz of it that was uh, at the time obviously... <laughs> uh, covering for the is the screen really cramped do i remember am i remembering that right yeah the ship is rather big as well isn't it yeah especially yeah. when you make it the uh chunky monkey 
Chunky Monkey. Also, I mean, it's a paddle game, so it's just tuned for like you mm. can't use a D-pad and and move around at the same speed that you need to. You can probably map it onto shoulder buttons, which is what I normally do for rotating games. Like I've I've done okay playing Mad Planets mm. with with shoulder buttons, but it's never it's never quite the same. You're absolutely right. And do the asteroids bounce off each other in this one, or do they? still go across one another i can't i can't picture it in my mind now because that would be a key gameplay difference compared to the vector graphics earlier ones yeah anyway asteroids home conversions ports and variants there were a lot we may not have much to say on on all of them but uh i think most of us have at least dabbled with the atari 2600 version from 1981 it i think it sold an enormous amount of cartridges i've been playing it well i've played it like a few a handful of times it's terrible, isn't it? <laughs> I generally don't have a lot of time for the Atari 2600 or the VCS. And this game didn't improve my uh, overall sentiment on the on that system. Because the asteroids just go up the screen. Yeah, basically. it can only move <laughs> exactly. vertically. It was not capable yeah. of horizontal. Yeah, and apparently no. it was an achievement to even get it. Like, I, I forget. Yes. Yeah, it, it, it's impressive they managed to even do it, but it doesn't even compare to Space Invaders or certainly... I mean, the Atari Pac-Man's terrible, but the Miss Pac-Man was quite good just because they had the time yeah, to make right, it. Right. And like, for whatever reason, this game just does not translate well at all. Mm. Uh, you do get 66 variations, though. So you can play many, many different <laughs> I mean, say, yeah, yeah, versions 66 of... 66 video games, it says exactly. on the box. All of them terrible versions <laughs> of Asteroids. Yes, these also, I should say, these, these current-gen Atari flashback compilations by Code Mystics are uh, replete with uh, a large selection of Atari VCS games, which are curious, mostly, and interesting. And I spent quite a few pounds buying this, these volumes for Xbox One the other day. And there's a lot of games I will never play, but they are interesting. Like, uh, And as a historian, without you know seeking out the, the ROMs and all the hardware, uh, it's a nice mm -hmm. way of looking at these curious things, but, but probably just play the arcade version of Asteroids that's on there. <laughs> <laughs> uh, there was going to be an Atari 8-bit version and an Atari 5200 version, which was the same based on the same hardware a couple of years later. Uh, this is also included on that compilation, and it's it's reminiscent of the 2600 version, but at least the asteroids actually move about the screen a bit more convincingly now. We should say, we haven't said, these are obviously, I say it's obvious, but the Atari 2600 was very low resolution, was not vector graphics capable, so these are just big coloured blobs, just chunky, blocky blobs of of video graphics um, and they break into slightly smaller chunks that still move vertically. And yes, this version at least allowed them to move sort of diagonally across the screen and stuff, but um, did add a quite a bit, but still stick to the original. Uh, there was another Atari version for the 7800, which is a machine I don't think that even ever came out over here. That was another year later. They released a lot of numbered consoles, didn't they, back in that? Back in that period, some years later, almost a decade later, in 1993, the Microsoft Arcade label. Remember that? Yeah, they were like simulations rather than emulations, right? They were um, like recoded, but yeah, this was the probably towards the end of the yeah the the conversion era rather than the the emulation era. Um, I don't know how well this one played, but it exists. Super Asteroids. It, it it's surprisingly good. It is actually oh. uh, uh, I had there. not played it before. <laughs> Uh, but, you know, I was just sort of going through everyone for at least a minute or two. And it's actually, I mean, yeah, the, you know, the screen size. But what's interesting about it is 
it has a very funny mechanic where when you get hit by an asteroid, you don't die. You have a shield and right. you can take like four or five hits before you die. And you and unlike asteroids, like you do also get a number of ships. So it's forgiving mm. in that way. But when an asteroid hits you, it also just whacks you in a direction uh, as, as fast as it's going. So you can end up dying very quickly by just like careening mm. and bouncing off a bunch of things and taking all yeah. the hits at once. G getting ping ponged around yeah, the screen. Yeah, so that it's actually, yeah, the, there's some clever design. There's a couple of like nice things with power ups that aren't overwhelming or anything. But yeah, definitely it was the it was a pleasant surprise. Apparently the very last game ever released for the poor Atari Lynx. Ah, 1995. Then there was another gap before the next official Asteroids. And I think, and again, I, I don't really remember, I vaguely remember this existing. This was a sort of typically late 90s attempt at bringing an old arcade name somewhat up to date on the PlayStation 1 and the N64 and PC. And also there was a Game Boy Color version. Did anyone manage to get some hands on with this Asteroids? Uh, I played a little of the Game Boy Color one and it was not, okay. it was fine. It was Asteroids, but... Nothing special. And there was also, and I don't remember this one, Asteroids Hyper 64 for the N64 in 1999. Tumbleweeds. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, folks, we've let you down there. But, um, I bet they're yeah, really right. chunky and low poly. Mmm, fuzzy. Yeah, fuzzy, fuzzy 3D asteroids. chunks. Yeah. Uh, yes, and then we came into the emulation era, that Atari Anniversary Edition, which also was on Dreamcast and PC, as well as PlayStation 1. The Atari Anthology, which I think that, does that also have a load of VCS stuff on it? Is it that one? I think, I think it, it is. is. I think it's mostly VCS, and it's got a couple of, like, eight arcade games or something. Yeah, yeah. 2003. And then the one I was playing until literally the other day, the one I've played for the last, yeah, 12 years apparently, was by Stainless Games. Uh, it was a double pack of Asteroids and Asteroids Deluxe. They also did a similar thing with uh, Centipede and Millipede and Missile Command and Battlezone. The mo this was in the era of we have to include a modern HD variant. And in my opinion, all of the modern HD variants on these double packs were hideous. Like, Ugh. so ugly. Like, just grotesquely, aesthetically unappealing. However... Thankfully, the packs also included the original games under emulation, so-so emulation, you know, perfectly fine, serviceable, high scores, achievements and all that. So, yeah, I've happily had those installed on my 360 and then my Xbox One for a long, long time, but um, decided to upgrade to those uh, Code Mystics packs, um, which the presentation and the emulation is generally a lot nicer, I would say. So it was worth, worth the outlay. It was also worth saying that both the original 1979 coin-up, the Atari VCS version, I believe, came to the much-missed and shortly-lived Microsoft Game Room from the Xbox 360 from 2010, which I loved, but hmm. no one cared about, least of all Microsoft. That was the, the virtual arcade kind yeah. of thing, right? Yeah. It was so good. There were so many games in there that never got released anywhere else, like Jackal and Juno First and all these cool things. And you could, it was, yeah, you could only buy the games. I think they released like packs or bundles of games. I mean, I just bought them all because of course I would. But <laughs> the, yes, you were kind of locked into buying multiple games rather than just buying one at a time, which did seem to be a bit of a misstep. That was handled by Chrome, the Australian studio formerly known as Melbourne House. 
makers makers of um, Way of the Exploding Fist and um, Shadowrun and things, uh, formerly Beam as well. Yeah. Oh wow. So um, it was yes, it was a great thing, and yeah, Microsoft just killed it. Um, it didn't really take off, but there were there were reasons to have it for for the arcade fanatic for sure. There was an Atari Greatest Hits compilation, 2010-2011 time for DS and iOS. I tend to avoid these things on iOS and don't know about the DS versions. I imagine they're fine. (laughs) Which brings us up to those three volumes of Atari Flashback Classic, three volumes on PS4 and Xbox One, one volume collected on, on Switch, but I couldn't ascertain whether Switch has all the stuff that the other versions has i suspect they've stripped out some of the <laughs> some of the atari vcs stuff i'm not sure um but it's slightly cheaper to buy on switch but i do recommend them as a collector they i think the presentation the emulation is generally pretty nice it's got lots in that um there was a art book released a couple of years ago with all the art from the atari packaging from that era presentation of these flashback packs includes a lot of that and although it does these releases do carry the at games branding i would say that they're a lot better than i understand the atari flashback hardware which was released in multiple forms by at games over some years generally to terrible reviews have any of you played with any of the atari flashback plug-in tv stuff no i still stayed well away yeah well that's the thing if you knew what you were talking about you tended to avoid them i think i played one at a relative's house many many years ago that they'd got just to show their kids it's um, yeah. Yeah. what old games used to be like, but this would, would have been kind of sometime in the noughts, and um, I've heard they've yes. not really got much. But the HD one's meant to be kind of okay, maybe? Oh, right. Yeah, this was before the kind of the, the NES and SNES classics and the Mega Drive kind of upped the ante for these, these, uh, these things a bit. So there we are. Um, anyway, plenty of ways of playing Asteroids, but also almost unlimited clones. I mean, I remember... I don't know if you guys can think back to your past, but do you remember any of the specific clones for any of your kind of 8-bit computers or anything? I mean, I I can't remember them individually, but I remember playing games called things like Comet, Planetoids, um, Meteor, Rocks, you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. I remember one, uh, it was in BASIC. I think it was like, it must have, I think it was even one that would run on the ZX81, but obviously with BASIC graphics and sort of text, like um ASCII based yeah um you're not going to get a great game of asteroids but that's the only one that sort of stick- i can't remember what it's called ASCIIroids? surely it was called <laughs> surely uh, the only one i've got on computer is maelstrom which was on the, the color macintosh in 1992 i actually went back to it and played it uh for about 10 minutes today just uh and uh it's very 1992. It has, you know, mm-hmm. all the sort of mac sound samples when you accidentally shoot the um, shield uh, <sighs> pickup. Uh, it has Ren from Ren and Stimpy saying, you idiot. Oh, wow. Very of its time. Uh, and mm. it's like, fine. It's, it's a decent. But I just remember yeah. everybody having it and it being like, yeah, one of the big popular pieces of shareware. It's, it's Asteroids. It's- I remember the name. Yeah, I remember the name. Didn't take too many liberties with the with the, the basic um, gameplay or premise. Because sometimes you've got that thing where, and obviously there's there's a lot of really successful ones and a lot of less so, but sometimes where you got the, the impression that the public domain code or whatever thought they were a better games designer than the person who made Asteroids or whatever and kind of said, yeah, I'll just make a few changes here to key elements and then, yeah, just broke it, broke everything that was magical about it or something. That happened. 
Yeah, there were some more, as I mentioned, Gravitar earlier, which was another Atari vector game, same technique, uh, yeah, tech at the time. Also, it was the colour the color board, and uh, that game inspired the home game Thrust, which became, uh, and Oids as well on the ST, which became quite big hits in the home market. Sinistar, I mentioned, which was William's game, arguably a sci-fi survival horror, um, but you do indeed bounce around in space between a rock's and Gottlieb's amazing Mad Planets, also 1983. Very different game to Asteroids, but you do play a pointy ship blowing up planets. Wow. So, I mean, it must be it must be influenced in some way by... I need by to play Asteroids. that someday. Oh, my God, Mad, Mad Planets. It'll probably never get its own podcast. It's uh, You can't really play it now because of the aforementioned control issues, but... Um, oh, God, I love it. Yeah, so good. Anyway... Uh, it also influenced Asteroids, a young wannabe developer by the name of Jordan Mechner. He would go on to make games like Karataka and Prince of Persia. This is from his college journal. Thanks to Jesse for digging this out. March 11th, 1982. Today, I worked out a couple of principles that make arcade games fun. First, you have to feel in control of your ship or car or man or whatever, so that when you get hit, you say... I should have thrusted asteroids instead of, oh, well, another ship gone. I wonder what hit me, such as in Star Castle. Second, you should be able to control the form of your attack. In short, have a strategy. Kick Space Invaders, Asteroids, Pac-Man, but counterexamples, Space Firebirds, Scramble or Sneakers. Third, there should be two goals. The primary goal, getting points, should not overlap 100% with the secondary goal, clearing screens. In Pac-Man, for example, you can go for the monsters, points, or the dots, clear the screen. In Asteroids, the saucers or the rocks. In Invaders, the creatures or the mystery ship. Whereas in Star Castle, which he clearly doesn't like, hmm. you just go in for the cannon. <laughs> yeah, you just go for the cannon. In Galaxian, the aliens. In Kicks, area. Interestingly, the only games with all these features are Pac-Man, Space Invaders, and Asteroids, the three number one games. Anyway... I'm hot to write new games. Well, all the stuff we've written about games design and spoken about games design in the last 40 years nearly pretty much rendered irrelevant there by Jordan Mechner's simple assertion that games have to have <laughs> these two things. But remember, these were different times. He went mm -hmm. on to write a game called Death Bounce on the Apple II, never published, uh, but this was part of his... Yeah, it got pretty far. I mean, it was it was at Broderbund. If you read his journals, which are absolutely fantastic and like available mm. on his website pretty cheap, it was going back and forth with Broderbund. They were pretty uh, tight about editing and like making sure things were up to their standard. Um, right. And he just kind of like, it's very funny. He just kind of is just being wishy-washy and like for a year is kind of going to finish it, but then doesn't finish it and then starts Karatika. And, but it's, it, it looks, it's, it's bounded. Uh, right. There's no wraparound yeah. and it's much more of like a death arena version of asteroids. Mm. Mm. Interesting stuff. And yeah, I suppose the two probably highest profile modern spiritual successors would be the Stardust series, which became Super Stardust, which became Super Stardust HD, which became Ultra Stardust. Or was it Super Stardust Ultra, I should say. <laughs> Why didn't they just call it Ultra Stardust? Um yeah, so that's by the uh, the the Housemark people uh, originally, Terramark and House, whatever it was. We've had this conversation before. <laughs> Blood House, that was it. Um, back in 1993 on the Amiga uh, and ST and MS-DOS with its uh, astonishing visuals, extremely challenging gameplay 
And yeah, it was a real technical tour de force. And I think they actually got better at the games as they went on. I think the the, the last version for PS3 and and uh, Vita and PS4 is just is you know it's just a cracking modern variant on the Asteroids formula. And yeah, it's easy to get hold of and play. You can normally pick up Super Stardust Ultra on PS4 for like three pounds on the PSN store. So if you want to kind of get some of the idea of what Asteroids is about, but with loads and loads and loads of modern twists, that's there. Any other fans of Stardust here? We may cover it someday because, you know, it's, it would warrant it. Yeah, it was a, I think it was probably got a bit more attention than it would have done otherwise because it was an early PSN release when the PS3 came out. They were quite good at doing that like they did with Resogun with the uh, with the PS4. But um, yeah, I think a lot, quite a lot of people played it. And there's also, of course, the Geometry Wars series, which was influenced by a lot of vectory graphics games, but certainly there's a huge amount of asteroids in it. Uh, we covered that back in our podcast on the, the entire series in issue 188. Uh, I mean, I just think they were amazing. I, uh, I still haven't. Um, I did try to catch up with what the author Stephen Cakebread was doing. He was working on something, but I don't know with the death of Bizarre Creations, what really happened with Geometry Wars. But again, if you've played Geometry Wars, but you don't know Asteroids, you'd probably be better off playing Geometry Wars in some ways because it's, you know, it's kind of a bit more, it's a bit more contemporaneous bells and whistles. Yeah, it's a bit more um, Robotron than Asteroids, I would say. Yes. Yeah, that's that's true. Yeah, it kind of merges. It, 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 yeah, the aesthetics are approaching something like vector graphics more. Yeah. And I, I have my issues with uh, with the original Geometry Wars, at least. Yeah, Retro Evolved 2 is the one, I think, to play. Uh, is the sort of the, the series high point for me. Curio time. I didn't realise this. I thought it was a coincidence. But it turns out that that little arrow that's on GPSs, although it has been replaced by little pictures of cars and things in modern GPSs, genuinely is based on the asteroid ship. <laughs> yeah, I wouldn't have made that connection so quickly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So this is from The Verge back in 2017. For those of a certain age, the iconic pew-pew-pew noises from the Asteroids arcade game bring a flood of memories. The gameplay pales in comparison to the ultra-realistic video games of today, uh, but there's a quaint charm to flying around in a little ship, a little spaceship blowing up floating rocks. Asteroids was one of the first really popular video games, but its legacy goes much further than that. In fact, if you use most popular GPS navigation systems, you're staring at a little bit of Asteroids lore every time you get in the car. Fast Company's Benj Edwards wrote an excellent story this week about Atari founder Nolan Bushnell's Catalyst Technologies, a high-tech incubator in the early 80s. In it, he shares a tale about the development of the ETAC Navigator, the world's first in-car computer navigation system, and the vector-based triangle shape that ETAC used for the on-screen representation of a car. During development, longtime Bushnell collaborator Alan Alcorn snuck into Atari's into nearby Atari's coin-op division building with ETAC engineers to show them the hit 79 game. Asteroids. The game used a vector display that produced fluid animations with low-cost hardware. It's little surprise then that ETAC's final on-screen representation of the car in its shipping product was a vector triangle nearly identical to the ship from Asteroids. It's basically a triangle with a slightly inverted base. Oh, that's nice to know. Yeah. <laughs> and according to a piece in Mental Floss, in also in March 20, uh, 2017, somebody remade the Asteroids game using lasers. I wanted to say it like Dr. Evil, <laughs> uh, but there's a video on YouTube. 
recreating asteroids with lasers. <laughs> uh, I'm sure it's been referenced in other popular culture things. It's not as, you know, it's not as iconic as Pac-Man or Mario, perhaps. But I would say it's kind of the essence of asteroids is is there. It's kind of in the in the modern lexicon of things. It's the sort of thing where, you know, that thing that we've complained about before, where somebody will be playing, I don't know, a Call of Duty game on a TV show, but the sound effects they've added on the TV uh, on the program later will be asteroids. <laughs> yeah, normally Defender actually, but but sometimes it might be asteroids. Anyway, yeah, the the, the various shapes of the asteroid rocks are not um, yeah as iconic as the Space Invader no. aliens, for example. Harder to draw in on a grid. <laughs> yeah, and as as characters, you know, um, but. As I said in the in in my when I was talking about my brief history with the, with the game, yeah, it's it's pretty much video game language. Asteroids is so it's somewhere it's it's in a lot of in a in the DNA of a lot of video games. And our three word reviewers just got a little handful. Start with Dan. The King Rocker says. Whoa, same age. Bearfish Pie says hyperspace always terrifying. Sean McGowan says, last rock standing. And Andrew Elmore says, timeless, still wonderful. Thank you, folks. A few of our listeners old enough to know what we're talking about. Hopefully for the rest of you, it's been an interesting history lesson. But as always, we'll conclude by summing up our feelings on the original asteroids and, uh, and where we want to, its spiritual successors, any recommendations and so on. Let's start with Mikhail. Yeah, it uh, pains me a little bit. I had the, I ran into the same uh, problem when we did the show on Galaxian and Galaga for that for along with a game that's uh, with such a long history. I have to be a little bit brief with my summary. But yeah, as I was just saying before, asteroids. I always saw it as in the DNA of uh, of of a lot of uh, video games of uh, video games as we know them today. Being yeah, having basically forming part of uh, video game language and how we communicate with uh, with video games. But going back to it last week, I also discovered that for such a rudimentary game in so many ways, I mean, it, it is more simple than the game that it inherits most of, which is uh, Space War, which is in so, so many ways a more sophisticated game. Mm. In so, yeah, for, for such a, a relatively simple game and you... You, you come across this time and again when revisiting early arcade games is that there's still so much going on in your mind when you play it. There's so many little split-second decisions that you make, so much improvisation you have to do on the fly and so, much, so many uh, things to weigh in your mind when you're playing it, uh, not even to speak of the hand-eye coordination and the dexterity that's... Uh, it required to, to play it anywhere efficiently. I mean, the original Asteroids might not uh, have had the most pull on me in the last week, but Asteroid Deluxe and, of course, Mindstorm on the Vectrex, uh, a very good variant on the game, definitely did. I, I d generally had those moments where I was thinking, okay, I need to stop playing now. One more go, one more go, one more go. And the, and the ghosts just kept on piling on, and I genuinely could not find it in me to to stop playing whenever mm. I saw the game over screen. So, yeah, I mean, testament to ingenious those, uh, those uh, early video games were and uh, yeah, how much pull they can still have on you if you get into them. Thanks, Mikhail. Yeah, I would say, like 
Jesse, perhaps, uh, maybe slightly more enthusiastically, but overall, like Asteroids isn't one of the games that I still just immediately, you know, kind of, what's that thing, makes it, you know, spark joy. It's not like Bubble Bobble where I'm just immediately like, yes, I wholeheartedly love that and I will always love it. Asteroids is slightly, it feels maybe, you know, slightly sort of appropriate for its kind of slightly stark, austere sort of visual nature and atmosphere i feel i feel slightly removed from it but it but it does have this unimpeachable cool about it everything about it you know especially looking back at the original artwork and and the the control panel layout and stuff like that and yeah just that magical sparkly glow of the vector screen which yeah maybe maybe this would do nothing for somebody who hadn't seen those machines at the time but it's for me, it is you know, an incredibly powerful, evocative thing just to see the these bright, yeah, almost bluish streaks twinkling across this screen and representing what at the time felt like, yeah, the future, like living in living in the future. And even when I don't get that now, if I do play Asteroids just on Xbox One or whatever, I still, while I might not sit there, you know, playing it over and over and over again. When I'm in it, I'm in it. Like it's still got a real. It, all the hooks still work. It's still a, a a game with a ludicrously high skill ceiling. Even if you were to be an odious lurker, you would still have to seriously learn how to react and respond accurately and execute beautifully every time a little bill came on the screen. But even just to play it the kind of the old fashioned, the legitimate, the honourable way and screen uh, clear, you know, wave after wave, wall after wall of asteroids um, and try to work out some kind of strategy and not rely on the dangers of hyperspace too much. There's still a really compelling moment to moment game in there that, yeah, like I said earlier, no two games are the same. Uh, There's no kind of actual repeats because of the the sheer number of variants that go on. So, um, yeah, it's well cool. I do recommend the current releases, the Atari flashbacks, even though I think a lot of people would want them to be a bit cheaper, but maybe check out Volume 2 when it's in a sale. You get Asteroids and Asteroids Deluxe. You can get it 50% off. You get it for like eight quid. And I would say that's more than worth it for a delicious slice of genuine video game history. Happy 40th to Asteroids. Uh, Jesse? Yeah, I mean, it makes me think about like it is pure video game, especially where Mechner sort of puts it with Pac-Man and Space Invaders is like, this is kind of the trinity of the super classic, mm. you know, late 79, 80 sort of video games. And I do mm. think it qualifies there, although I think it's in a way the least of those three, but the purest, right? That that Japanese games tend to like Space Invaders and Pac-Man have more of an emotional effect. There's a character um there's mm-hmm. things are coming after you they seem to not like you um and mm-hmm. in this game maybe mm-hmm. that's kind of what makes mr bill so terrifying is he is actually <laughs> the only thing in the game that is actively hostile to you the other spaceship and the asteroids they're just kind of there and like it's just True. a hostile universe and there is and unlike those games it has some sense of real world physics which I think I think that's the thing that gripped people at that point is even though the ship is very difficult to control, you do have this control over it as if it were an object. And I think I'm always interested in the fact that more than even mathematicians or engineers, it was usually the physicists who went into computer programming at the very beginning. Right. This kind of like, oh, you can take 
the real world and turn it into these differential equations. And then there's the alchemy of like, oh, you can put this equation in a machine and like things move. They don't just move, right? They move like they are like <laughs> objects. There's And the vector graphics you know, there, there's a mass. luminosity that make yeah, they have mass in a very weird and compelling way. <laughs> and that aspect, like the game itself has its ups and downs for me, as I said, like the level of control. Again, I, you know, I'd prefer Mindstorm. It's just more my sort of game. Um, and mm -hmm. I especially like the way the like the homing minds force you to move around without it being I don't know. But but yeah, there's something of those early games that physics that you see in Lunar Lander, you see in Space War and all that, like that, I guess, replaces any need for any other emotional affect. Um, and so from that angle, like, yeah, it's it's not a game I'll go back to uh, and play very much, but but I do appreciate it uh, as this like is the video gamiest video game in that like <laughs> right what's appealing about it is just sheer causality and physics and control yeah which makes me realize we've come all the way to our final summary and we've yet to talk about the story the plot <laughs> no I'm kidding um it doesn't even tell you why you're clearing the asteroid fields right it doesn't because you're not trying to get through it you can't get through it there's nowhere to get through to. You just come back on the other side. So why are you clearing out the other The story is what you see the instant you turn on the game. That's it. That's the story for you. <laughs> Survive. And then in conclusion. Well, uh, most of my summary is going to be uh, a few little trivia points that I meant to bring up in the show. And then, you know, when you just don't find time to, to find something. Like um, but what I will say about the game itself is um, why I find it unique in, the, in those early games is the... Um, the inertia momentum kind of, although you've got digital inputs, it leads to analog outcomes, mm. which I think is um, yes. just very unusual for the time. Mm. But, um, what I found was, yeah, just the sheer sort of precision of control that you've got with, with how it works, um, I found just quite striking for something of that age, especially having gone back to other older games for the show, that this that's a clear sort of leap in tech away from uh, some of the other things. You know what I mean? There's more going on in the in the background and then uh, just a couple of other things uh, asteroids deluxe the ui and hud kind of defined what would end up as a sort of atari house style for vector games uh, wow. like star wars and empire strikes back if you like the top of the screen the hud elements are kind of uh, the yes. uh, kind of prototype of the uh, atari house style i guess that book how to win on uh, win at video games it's got an interesting opener to its asteroid section that i think possibly may tie into uh, the discovery of lurking uh, from the uh, guy from Atari's right. interview, the, the timeline. Now, this is pure speculation, by the way. Don't uh, quote me on this. But what the book says is, you almost didn't read this. Most of us thought Atari uh, Asteroids was a dead or at best dying game. Then we started reading our mail. Asteroids, to our surprise, is anything but dead. In fact, it appears to be coming back. Perhaps people are rediscovering it or playing it for the first time. Whatever the cause may be, Asteroids is alive and well. Thank you. So I wonder if... Um, when our, like at the beginning, until players discovered lurking, it maybe wasn't so popular. Then people realized that you can get great value for money. So what may have looked like a downside to Atari may actually have led a bit like with the some machines uh, when the, when piracy uh, becomes a thing, suddenly have right. a ramp up in sales. And it's uh, not necessarily the best thing for the market, but it's but it does provide a uh, a leap of sorts. So I just wondered if that's uh, something for people to sort of think about. There was also a Sega licensed arcade version in Japan, which is uh, strange, seeing as Taito had the uh, Taito, sorry, had the original license. 
didn't they? Yeah, uh, Northern Iron until uh, earlier today. Um, but there's an arcade flyer and manual for it. It's a, it's a proper thing, but it has a joystick, so it's not going to have controlled, I don't think, oh. quite as well as uh, as a uh, hmm. digital buttons version. But um, but yeah, I just thought it was super interesting that for some reason there's a Sega version. I did wonder if it's a different game with the same name, but no, on the uh, like second page of the manual, it credits Atari as the, the creators. I wonder how rare and expensive that cab. I bet it's or super it's... rare. The fact that we didn't sort of hit upon it, I think is, yeah, must not, not mm. be very well known at all. And then I'm going to give away a free game to all the listeners. So, um, well, assuming they've got Red Zone on the Mega Drive or Genesis. Um, <laughs> so uh, That's quite a big, that's quite a niche. Well, sort of, <laughs> we can all find games in places nowadays. Um, yeah, so yeah. Um, Red Zone, which was a sort of technical masterpiece on the, yes. on the Mega Drive, um, it's got computer terminals in the game. Um, I think you can access this from those. So you have to put in the password ABCACA. C-B-C-A-C, and you can unlock an Asteroids minigame in Red Zone. Speaking of uh, piracy, though, that uh, it is worth noting that GCE did release all the Vectrex games to the public domain, so you can emulate it, and, you know, it won't be exactly the same, but the, the games stand up, and you can, you know, download an, a Vectrex emulator on your computer. Good stuff. If you want to find out what uh, Mickey was waxing lyrical about, the game and we Jesse, weren't actually and covering. And Jesse, and Jesse. Okay. You've just about, you've won me round, even though it was the Asteroids show. It's also, it's officially also the Mindstorm show. <laughs> Sorry, Atari. Right. So it remains for me, Leon, to thank Jesse, Mikiel and Dan, as well as our correspondents. And to you for listening. If you've enjoyed this podcast and you appreciate the time, effort, research and love that's gone into it, do rate, do review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your audio media. But best of all, support us do. We are planning on doing at least another year. We've got coming up another 50 shows. Get them early, get them extended at patreon.com slash canarince.com. Just a dollar or more is the minimum we ask. You can even put more in if you like. Uh, and you get an exclusive monthly podcast as well. And you get our format specials three months early. Currently the Dreamcast show, which is a cracker. And you can get that right now if you sign up to our Patreon. And the next one will be PSP at the end of the year, early next year. And we appreciate it greatly. Next time in issue 398, Time Is Not Your Enemy forever is it's our planescape torment podcast Fuzzy 3D chunks.